Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests are from Colorado. Uh, we have Dr. Ingrid Bingswanger, who has studied uh, overdose and incarceration and written some interesting things about that, and also uh, Lisa Ravel, who is the executive director of the uh, Harm Reduction Action Center in Colorado, which is Colorado's first needle exchange program. We're very excited to have them here. We're going to have some interesting discussion tonight. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. I'm going to bring our guests on right now. Hello, Lisa and Ingrid. How are you guys doing this evening? Uh, Lisa, you go first. Great. Thank you. <laughs> and Ingrid, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, I really, you know, I was reading your paper, Ingrid, when I was working uh, in needle exchange at the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center, and I thought it was really an important study. And I'm going to start with that first. So tell us a little bit about what happens to people who are released from prison and uh, in terms of the drug use, in terms of overdose. Tell us what your paper's about. Well, we followed about 70,000 people who were released from Washington State Department of Corrections, which is the Washington prison system. And we followed them. Basically, we've done two um, cohorts or two times that we followed these folks. And um, we did this by linking information that the Department of Corrections was willing to share with us about everyone who was released from prison during at least over a 10-year period to the National Death Index. And using that information, we were able to calculate death rates during the time after people are released from prison. And it was really nice because we had the opportunity also to remove time when people were back in prison from our denominator. So we really got a good sense of what was going on for people in the community after their release. And basically what we found was an elevated risk of death overall that's about three and a half times higher than the general population, so people who are not incarcerated, who are basically of the same gender age and race. And mm-hmm. then we also found that in the first couple of weeks after release of prison, from prison, there's a particularly heightened risk for overdose deaths. And mm-hmm. overdose in this context included drugs and alcohol, as well as um, basically any opioids that may have been pharmaceutical as well as heroin. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me uh, ask some questions to clarify. Well, first, was there an increased risk of mortality for all different causes of death, of overdose and everything else as well? Yes, absolutely. So there's an increased risk of almost basically three and a half times higher from all cause mortality 
compared to the general population. So this population that interacts with the prison system is at higher risk from all cause deaths. And we found heightened risks from many other causes of death, not just overdose. Overdose was the most dramatic, but we also find heightened risks from cardiovascular disease, from suicide, from homicide, from cancer. Basically, most of the leading causes of death were elevated in this population compared to the general population. We just didn't see a striking time trends. So, you know, a lot of the cancer deaths might have occurred a year or beyond after release from prison, or liver disease deaths might have occurred, don't necessarily occur right as strongly, aren't as strongly related to the immediate post-release period. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned there was a, there was a time differential. So um, was there a difference between very shortly after release and a longer period of time after release? Yes, there was. Um, so in the immediate post-release period, we saw an elevated risk of all-cause mortality and particularly for overdose mortality. Um, overdose was kind of driving this peak of death, and that was really concentrated, especially in the first week after release from prison. And then the risk decreased. It was still higher than you would want or you would expect, but it reduced, you know, in the weeks after the release. Mm -hmm. For non-overdose deaths, we don't see as strong of a time trend. Um, So like I said, they those deaths can occur occur kind of in a more sporadic way, even though the big picture is that they're all elevated relative to the general population. But it's not as striking for other causes of death. And as I recall in this early post-release period, the, uh, the rates of overdose death, weren't they more than 100 times greater than the general population? Right, so for overdose in particular, the rates of death were more than 100 times in the general population. And then the other thing to note is that this population, we've done a subsequent study where we looked at sort of patterns of change over time, and what we sort of learned in that subsequent study was that also the trends in what kind of substances are affecting people have sort of changed over time. So initially we saw a lot more cocaine and psychostimulant deaths in the first phase about kind of maybe about 10 years ago. And now we see increasing deaths from opioids and from pharmaceutical opioids in particular. The other thing to note is that the other thing we we were able to show is that the deaths, um, the deaths in, people who've come out of prison account for a substantive portion of all of the overdose deaths in the state. So in terms of general overdose prevention efforts, this is a very important population because, you know, if you're able to reduce those deaths in this population, you are likely going to have an impact on overall mortality deaths from overdose in your state. Huh. Okay, now that leads into, I think, my next question, which is, uh, Ingrid, how did you get to know Lisa and the Harm Reduction Action Center? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, um, let's see. How did we? Oh, yes. Now I remember. We got to know each other really, I think, through working on issues related to naloxone distribution um, mm-hmm. and sort of formed a informal task force we, we um, and spent uh, had a lot of meetings with her as well as other people who worked at Denver Health and um, other folks from Harm Reduction Action Center try to get greater access to naloxone in our state. And that's how we first met. Then we also had the opportunity to write a grant together, and we had a project funded by our Clinical Translational Sciences Unit at the university where we were co-principal investigators who worked on a collaborative research project together. So we've had several several ways that we've intersected. <laughs> okay, Lisa, now I'm going to ask you some questions. And... Now, okay. If if I recall, <coughs> excuse me. If I recall correctly, um, we had a visitor from uh, Harm Reduction Action Center at uh, Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center in uh, New York City in Manhattan a couple years ago when I was working yes. there, and I actually introduced him to naloxone and got him trained. I think he was he said that there was no naloxone at that time in the Colorado. Correct. Yes, as you're talking about our board member, Matt Slaby, who's a photographer, who's yes, also yes. done, yes. Um, yeah, oh, that's a good memory, um, nine anti-stigma campaign videos for us. And we were really jealous because at that time, it must have been uh, 2012-ish, maybe early 2013. Yes. Cause it, yeah, because at that time, he was able to, uh, in Colorado, prescribers could prescribe to opiate users um, naloxone, but they could not do third parties. So in 2013, we passed Senate Bill 14, which allowed for third-party distribution. So when he was out in New York, we told him he had to go and he had to get trained, and so we were really excited, and he brought it back to us and showed us how, so we were very excited. So we've had third-party naloxone um, legislation since 2013, and then just this year, in 2015, we just passed uh, standing orders for expansion to the naloxone, and that actually passed the state legislator. All 100 state legislators voted in support of standing orders naloxone. And when's the last time that they all agreed on the same thing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. You know, I was actually sitting in the room while Matt was getting trained. I was watching him get trained because I hooked him up with the trainer. So. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's been really important. He spent half the year in Denver and then half the year in New York City. So we make him meet all these great people in New York City and then bring us back all these nuggets of goodness. <laughs> so the, um, I know at Lower East Side, we've uh, had a program going for a few years now where we send uh, our staff people to Rikers Island uh, to teach people, uh, teach the uh inmates about uh, overdose prevention and about naloxone and uh, uh, how they can get it from us after they're released. So uh, do you have any programs uh, working with prisoners in Colorado or anywhere? So we have talked to the Department of Corrections to work on that. That has been very slow going for us, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, We are making more of – oh, I'm sorry. We are making more of an inroad – 
Oh, we are making more of an inroad in <laughs> we are making more of an inroad in the Denver County Jail. Uh, we now have a physician, Dr. Josh Bloom, who has his assistant that's training folks one on one in the Denver County Jail and putting a prescription to naloxone in their um, kit to leave, and then they can uh, pick that up uh, at Denver Health. Um, and get the intranasal. We'd love to get money to be able to put the actual naloxone in their kits when they, they, we leave. We can't do that right now, so he's doing the second best thing. So Denver County Jail is now helping us to uh, decrease overdoses in Denver. Okay, that is great progress. Um, yeah, very exciting. So what was this grant project that you worked with Ingrid on? Tell me a little bit about that. Is that uh, related to harm reduction, I assume? Oh, absolutely. It was actually related to our overdose prevention and treatment arm. So uh, Ingrid and uh, Dr. Steve Kester and a couple other folks were able to analyze our um, naloxone program to make sure that the trainings were good, that knowledge, attitudes, and beliefs were happening. Um, we were able to push forward and that the trainings were working. And um, so she's, she, I mean, she's such a rock star out here. Everybody knows Dr. Ingrid Binswinger, right? So we were really excited to be able to partner, and especially with the university, too. The university was very supportive and um, allowing this research to happen. And then Dr. Steve Kester is doing a lot of um, uh, qualitative or qualitative um, uh, information to make sure kind of the context around some of the issues of, of you know, we have a 911 Good Samaritan law, but, you know, it can be difficult for users in, you know, in the event of an overdose to want to call 911. It's much easier if they have naloxone to be able to use that, even though they know they'll have to babysit for the whole, you know, rest of the day. And mm-hmm, so kind of trying mm-hmm. to figure out what we can figure out um, here in Denver. So yeah, it was a really, really great partnership. We just ended that probably end of last year, I think. And um, Ingrid and I got to got a chance to speak at the public health conference together last September. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we you really can... wanted to learn. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say we really wanted to learn more about the context of how naloxone was being used by people. And Dr. Kester did some wonderful interviews with people who had used naloxone in overdose situations and learned a lot more about the context. One of the things that I've been really worried about is just how wor- how fearful people are of contacting the police, even in states like Colorado, where we have Good Samaritan legislation. And he was able to get a lot more rich information about that context that and he's working on writing some of that up now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean it is actually a very genuine fear that people have I know uh, North Carolina has uh, good Samaritan laws but not all the police know that they exist uh, I know somebody was was arrested for calling 911 after the good Samaritan law was in place uh, the person that was arrested didn't know the law existed the police man that arrested him didn't know the law existed so he was sitting there for a long time until someone came up to him and said there's a law that protects you and he Mm -hmm. finally got you know out of custody but you know there are some real reasons still to uh, be concerned and i think that's what we're finding here too Mm mm-hmm 
Well, and Ken, too, we, we passed in the last six years, we've passed six harm reduction laws, three for overdose and three for syringe access and participant exemption. And I got to tell you, step one is actually passing legislation. Steps two through nine is all about implementation. I was very naive in 2010 when we were part of passing syringe access. And I was like, all right, 90 days, signed by governor, let's make this happen. And it took us 21 months to actually be able to begin because of all the bureaucracy that happened with that. So the same with 911 Good Samaritan Law, we've done 19 roll calls for the Denver Police Department to let them know about all sorts of law changes, but that's just Denver, and you're not even getting every single law enforcement officer then, and so then, you know, trying to get out to the metro areas and the small towns and with the sheriffs, and so it's been particularly powerful for us to see that, okay, we want the streets to influence the policies at the Capitol, and we need to pass these laws for the health and dignity of people who inject drugs in the state of Colorado. However, it's just step one of many steps to make sure that it's actually implemented correctly. Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge task. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, have you, have you been uh, tracking overdose reversals with naloxone? Do you have any numbers? Yes, I have. So we've trained about 400 folks in the last three years, and we've had 184 reversals. We're very excited. <laughs> yeah, and then great. we know that's that standing great. orders, yeah, we know that standing orders is really going to be able to open this up for us because while we've been able to train 400 folks with the 184 reversals, we've had 2,600 requests for naloxone. But we, you know, my doc is only there once a week who can do the prescribing, and so standing orders is going to definitely open the expansion for access to naloxone. Good. That's, that's excellent. You know, what we need to do is get naloxone over the counter. Yes, absolutely. And I think the feds seem to be on the case, but if we waited for them, you know, so that's, I definitely see that in the next few years. I mean, Ingrid, I know, goes to more of those FDA conferences, so she might have a better um, finger on the pulse of when that would happen. But, I, I mean, it's just... It's so uh, such a wonderful and miraculous drug, and you can't get high from it. The only thing it can do is save a life. Like, you know, it needs to be over the counter. And so, with the standing orders, it's for harm reduction organizations and pharmacists. So we're hoping to kind of do what you know Rhode Island has too, and people can just get it over the counter. And because I think pharmacies are really important as well, because it's a healthcare center on every corner, and you don't know why someone's going into a pharmacy. You know, they, they're, they're very anonymous mm -hmm. to be able to be in there. You come in and out of my agency, and you kind of know why people are in and out of there. So <laughs> I think people appreciate like the kind of anonymity, but also you know, like the you know, pharmacies are really on the forefront of HIV and Hep C prevention efforts, and this is just another thing that they do to be able to serve the community. So we were really excited about that. So Ingrid, do you yeah, think, I think there's a lot anytime of... soon? Anytime soon be over the counter? You know, I I'm not so optimistic that it's going to be over the counter soon. I think the amount of data needs that the FDA has in order to make something over the counter, my impression is that it's mm. sort of overwhelming. So, you mm -hmm. know, part of it also has to do with can you label, it sounded like from the last FDA meeting that I was at that there were a lot of concerns about whether you can label intranasal naloxone so that someone can literally pick it up. Well, first of all, intranasal isn't yet FDA approved, but then mm -hmm. even if it was syringe-based, you'd have to label it in such a way that someone could over-the-counter pick it up and do it with minimal instruction. Um, mm. so that 
And so I think, you know, and then Evzio certainly is going to be way too expensive to have as an over-the-counter medication. So I don't know how soon over-the-counter is on the horizon. I mean, certainly they, I think I understood the FDA was aware that this is something people are interested in, and I'm sure that that will come up in the next meeting that they have, which is in July, early July. Um, so I'm sure it'll come up again at that meeting, and it'll be interesting to see um, what kinds of considerations are on the table now. But I think the standing order legislation is probably a really nice way to increase access to naloxone mm-hmm. through relatively low-burden ways at mm-hmm. the state level. But it does require every state you know, engaging in that kind of legislation, and it could be that there are other states that aren't as willing as Colorado has been. Mm-hmm. So, Ingrid, did you have a The other thing is Lisa is an see? incredible champion. Mm-hmm. Lisa is an incredible <laughs> champion and has really, like, brought all of this, you know, to the fore as well as other partners here. It's a pretty incredible um, force of people who have, have advocated for naloxone and overdose prevention here. Now, before I interrupted you with my question, did you have another topic that you were going to bring up, Ingrid? No, go ahead. Or did you cover it? Oh, okay. So, what, what, Ingrid, what research are you working on now or are you planning to work on? What's your next thing? Yeah, so I'm working now on um, how to get naloxone prescribed in primary care settings. So I'm actually trained as a primary care provider and I have we at when I was working at Denver Health until just recently, we actually did start to prescribe naloxone to patients on high dose opioids. Uh, thanks to a lot of partners at Denver Health, the formulary committee approved naloxone to be on the formulary. And they targeted patients specifically on higher doses, and we also implemented sort of an opioid safety clinic that didn't have to necessarily be with your primary care doctor, but could be with a nurse practitioner or physician's assistant to go over naloxone and have the nurse train for the naloxone, and then somebody could go pick it up at the pharmacy. So we've been working on also trying to understand across three different health systems how providers like physicians and pharmacy staff and nurses and other clinic administrators perceive naloxone and whether they would be willing to educate patients about overdose and also prescribe it in their clinics. And we've done that at Kaiser Permanente Colorado as well as University of Colorado Hospital Clinics and Denver Health Clinics and try to scan the environment to get a sense of how what the barriers to naloxone prescribing are in primary care settings. So that's what we've been focusing on. We've also been doing interviews with patients who are on opioids for pain to find out more about how they feel about naloxone and how they want their doctors to talk to them about it, if they want their doctors Mm -hmm. to talk to them about it. And then um, we're trying to design an intervention to enhance the prescribing of naloxone by primary care providers and other medical providers. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there's an interesting correlation that you can see. Actually, I think I'm the first one that saw this. But uh, if you look at high-dose opioid prescriptions by age and gender, and if you look 
at rates of opioid overdose death by age and gender. It's the same ages and genders that are having the uh, overdose deaths in the high rate of of high-dose opioid prescribing. I published an article about that a couple weeks ago on rehabs.com. I called it Don't Blame Addicts for the Overdose Epidemic. But it was a really interesting correlation that, that showed up. I just thought by accident by looking at two different graphs. So, yeah, someday maybe I can talk to you a little bit more about that particular bit of data and how it fits with everything else that we know. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's two things that you bring up that are very important. Um, one of the issues is that there's clearly a an association with just increasing trends of prescribing opioids and the increases in pharmaceutical opioid deaths in the United States. So those things are tightly linked. And um, I'm sorry I haven't seen your article yet, but I'd like to read it. But it sounds fair. It sounds like you're seeing that as well in the demographic trends other thing that you mentioned is about sort of blaming the addicts and I think that's what you the phrase you used and um, mm-hmm. yes I think there is a lot of self-reflection in the medical community now about opioid prescribing practices I think the concern of course is that there's a backlash and doctors mm-hmm. are very anxious about this now and I think one of the concerns that I have is unintended consequences of trying to sort of um, moderate the consumption of opioids through prescribing practices. And so that's that's something that's going to need a lot more work, but it's definitely an area that physicians are sensitive to and are aware of uh, these days. Mm-hmm. But I think we have mm-hmm. to be careful about the messaging. Oh, exactly. Uh, well, the other... The other piece of the puzzle that does not get mentioned anywhere nearly enough is it's very it's quite rare to have an opioid overdose where an opioid is the only drug involved in the vast majority of cases there is drug mixing there's an opioid that is mixed with a benzodiazepine or with alcohol or with cocaine or with another upper. I mean, the vast majority of overdose deaths are actually polydrug poisonings. They're they're kind of it's kind of incorrect to call them overdoses. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work still to be done on sort of how we categorize what our definitions are, the terminology we use, and we've been just trying to do a chart review where we look at medical records and determine you know, how many times an overdose is coded as an overdose, that it is a true overdose. And we even tried to sort of come up with some case criteria for what is an overdose and how do you determine Mm -hmm. what it is in the medical record. And you would think that that sort of work had already been done, but we we couldn't really find it. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the things that we've been Mm -hmm. trying to work on because I think you're right. There's a lot of definitional issues and there's a lot of overlap between different substances that are involved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's particularly clear when you're looking at uh, New York City data and the New York City Department of Public Health because this was brought up back in the 1970s in New York City, and currently New York City is really good about identifying all the substances involved in a drug-related death. And in the the last couple of reports they published, I think uh, 
2011 report, it was 97% of all so-called overdose deaths were actually polydrug deaths. And then in 2012, I think it was 94%, but it was over 90%, far over 90% in both hmm. years that they published. So uh, New York City, we've definitely seen it, it's polydrug overdose. And as I said, the coroners here are really careful to record all that data every time that they look at these deaths. So it's, it's a really great source of data, and it really gives you pause to think. Mm-hmm. And we see that a lot of times, too, when we have clients that pass away, and we lost eight last year to overdose in 2014, and like we cannot do that again in 2015. That's just unacceptable. Um, and so we get the coroner's reports, um, and we're, we see a lot of the same things that you're talking about, Ken. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's difficult. The benzos to the, or alcohol or a lot of goofballs too, some meth and uh, heroin together, and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the speedballs. No problem. You call them goofballs in your uh, area? Well, meth and heroin they call goofballs, and then okay. cocaine and heroin they call speedballs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So okay. goofballs have become very popular as of late too. Uh, okay. Yeah, they reported uh, a lot more speedballs uh, in New York City. Not so many uh, goofballs, not so many mixed with methamphetamine. A lot of heroin and coke. It's a very popular combo here. And it's a it's very deadly combo. It's an extremely dangerous combo. Yeah. yeah. And people are not a, they're not aware of that. They, they're not aware. I mean, heroin alone, if you have pharmaceutically pure heroin and you know what you're shooting, it's you're not you're very unlikely to overdose. Mhm. It's, it's quite well, uncommon. And, the, what, you, and part of my problem too is, is there, there's no better business bureau for dealers. So heroin purity on the streets of Denver is anywhere between two and fifty-seven percent at all times, and so no one ever really mm-hmm. knows what they're getting too. Even if they think it's the same dealer, it could be a different dealer. And by the time they're getting to these dealers, it's already been cut so many times, or potentially not cut, that even the dealer doesn't even really know. And so that can be so tricky, too. It's like I'd rather people, you know, injected or used pills because at least you know what's in that pill. You can count on that. You just don't know what's, you know, the purity of heroin at any particular moment in time. Yeah, unfortunately, they've uh, messed up the pills so that now they, I mean, they'd rather see people die from pill injecting than see them. uh, They did the same thing in Prohibition with alcohol when they denatured it by mixing it with wood alcohol. And right after the government right. did that, we had all these deaths from wood alcohol right. poisoning, and now we're having deaths from people injecting these pills that are not supposed to be injectable, and they're clogging up their veins. Right. I mean, it's horrible. You should, it's much better just let mm-hmm. people inject the pills. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I don't see you – know, I'm not against opioid prescribing. I think that it's actually a problem – when the doctors get too scared and they they decide we have to cut you off because you're getting addicted, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. But what we really need to do, in my opinion, is educate people about the dangerous, high risk ways of using their opioids and the safer ways of using them. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really great point. I mean, I think that's part of what we are trying to learn from patients is also how they want that information conveyed to them. And one of the tension points is, of course, that there is a lot of stigma associated with addiction and patients 
who have pain and are on opioids don't want that stigma applied to them. So the language people use, providers use with patients, it's like we need to learn what language to use to be able to get some of those messages across without people feeling labeled. Um, So Mm -hmm. that's part of what we're trying to learn from patients. Yeah, nobody likes to be labeled. I mean, why is it... Why can't we just accept people's right to put whatever substance they want in their own body? You know, we accept consenting adults' rights to, you know, engage in sexual practices that they both consent to if they're both adults. Why can't we just accept people's rights to put whatever substance they want in their own body? It's the same thing in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing is as a prescribing provider, there's a sort of legal there's a lot of legal contracts you've sort of entered into and uh, mm-hmm, licensing mm-hmm. issues and other issues so as a prescriber i think that's it's sort of a different ball game um in terms of that particular issue of course um because you're mm-hmm. liable um when something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. bad happens to your patients so i think that's you know i think there's there's some legitimate concerns on the on the part of providers about safety considerations. Oh, yes. So they certainly don't want to be responsible for things that have happened, you know, that happen. But I think the safety needs to be balanced with sort of the humanity and also an understanding of the symptoms people will have when they go into withdrawal and also the risks of sort of rapid changes in dosing because then some of the tolerance effects come into play or loss of tolerance. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I really worry about from the – oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No. Well, one of the things that I worry about from the work that we've done with people coming out of prison is, you know, we also worry about people coming out of detox, for example, or Mm -hmm. abstinence-based treatment environments and what happens when, when or if they relapse after those settings again, because of the loss of tolerance. And I think that can also be applied. There's data out of the UK that suggests even for people who use opioids after hospitalization can be risky for overdose. So the tolerance effects are are likely some contributor to this picture. And what I worry about is if there's a lot of changes in the dosing, even in primary care settings or pain settings where, you know, if people are making rapidly weaning people off of opioids or trying to reduce the dose, that then there could be increased susceptibility subsequent to that. So I worry a lot about about sort of dosing changes based on the research mm-hmm. with people who've been incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a very legitimate concern. Have you seen the uh, Davoli study, I think that's the right name. Um, I think it's 2007. They were studying um, overdoses after after the termination of treatments. Uh, that studies out of Italy. Did you see that? I don't remember if I've seen that one in particular. I'm not sure. Tell tell me more about it. Oh, it was a big epidemiological study where they followed up. Um, uh, people in therapeutic communities, people on methadone, um, people in detox programs, and, well, 
basically they found that sudden termination of treatment in any treatment modality uh, greatly increased uh, the risk of overdose mortality. Um, and they found that retention in treatment uh, greatly reduced the uh, overdose mortality, regardless of the treatment type. So uh, it kind of makes sense from everything that we know already, but it's a, it's a great epidemiological yeah. study that was done in Italy with the huge population. So it's an excellent epidemiological study. Well, it's really nice to have that kind of data because I think when we're thinking, that kind of data can really influence practice, and I think that's why I was so excited about working with Lisa and the Harm Reduction Action Center is because if we can generate data about existing programs and, you know, new approaches to training people and, you know, all these different, um, you know, how much training people need and what the literacy level is and what the outcomes are, both the local data speaks to our local policy makers, but also the data locally can also be really inform kind of national policies and national practice around some of these issues. So, um, mm-hmm. so hopefully Lisa will continue to work with me. <laughs> Absolutely. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was going to say earlier, um, well, because <clears throat> we were talking about prescription laws and uh, you know the obligations and uh, you know for for providers, but in, it's my opinion, it's my belief, you know, because I do believe people have a right to put what they want in their own bodies. I would like to see all everything from Prozac to heroin made over the counter. People have a right to make their own choices. They have a right to make their own mistakes. Uh, that's the only position that I've been able to come up with that really fits with my beliefs in human rights and people's rights to make their own decisions. So, I mean, that's currently my position is really people should have a right to buy anything they want and take anything they want. You don't have to agree with that. I think a lot a lot of people will not agree with that position. That's an extreme position, but it's the one I found myself taking. It's the only one that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's Absolutely. a really interesting um, position. Yeah. Mhm. Go ahead. Well, Lisa. and can I see that? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, can I see that a lot too? And you know, I came into this field probably only you know like seven to ten years ago, and um, you know, I appreciate you know the public health work, and, and even though I'm not a public health nerd, um, I understand. You know, I don't believe people should have to live with chronic diseases, um, whether they want to live a life of recovery or not, um, and I don't believe that they should have to die if they want to get high. And then I've also seen too what 40 years in the war on drug users has done, and I think we've already, you know, and if stigma and shame worked with drug use, we wouldn't even have this. But stigma and shame don't work. And that's been a really big problem, and it's driven it underground, and people have gotten HIV HIV and Hep C and died. Um, And so what I like, and I like what you said, too, is what I like about harm reduction and really working with this population is we are realistically talking about what's going on today, and people use drugs. And I think the part of the problem with society a lot of times, too, is, you know, in a magical world, there would be no drugs, you know, for the people that, you know, you know, it hurts their stomach to even talk about drugs. But we live here and there are drugs. And what I appreciate about what you're saying about everything being over the counter is I would just like to see some consistency in the drugs that people are using. Um, and so, you know, I'm back to my Better Business Bureau <laughs> with the dealers or really the cartel or however it comes down. And, 
you know, if people knew, you know, would could actually consistently get same grade of everything, heroin to Prozac to, you know, meth. I mean, we have meth problems now again. Um, you know, I, th- I think we could really be on to something and then we could all push forward and move on to something else. I think this is what really gets us stuck here. So um, I appreciate you saying that because it's just very difficult when when people don't know what kind of, you know, what the purity of the heroin is. Um, that's a problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ingrid, I mean, I do you want to talk about this? Makes, yeah, you know, I think what you're saying is very interesting to me um, because I've never really thought about it that way in terms of pharmaceutical medications being all being over-the-counter. Um, so so I'll have to think some more about that. But I think what um, what I what I value, I guess, is that people have good information and maybe this aligns with a little bit with what Lisa's saying. I feel like maybe if I felt like everybody understood the risks and the benefits of mm-hmm. the substances that they were taking and you know, pharmaceutical or otherwise, and also could predict how those things would impact them in the future, um, I guess in a world with perfect prediction where you could kind of <laughs> you know, really understand what the impact of the substances that you're using could have on you currently today in terms of your risk of anything happening to you, an adverse event or a death or a, um, you know, or, you know, what, or even positive benefit that it would be a good drug for you, that you would enjoy it or that it would be a good medication for you. Um, And also the downstream effects over time, including dependence um, or withdrawal symptoms. I think the problem is that most people don't enter into use of medications or other substances with that perfect knowledge. So that's that's where, you know, but then I guess then, so that at this point that leaves the physician or the pharmacist or the prescriber in the position of kind of the gatekeeper and the FDA of course, um, or the DEA (laughs) in terms of that gatekeeper, but that does put a lot of responsibility on those folks to inform people well, and I'm not sure that we're quite there. We're there yet, obviously. There's a lot of barriers Mm -hmm. to giving good information. Mm -hmm. Now, for me personally, the drugs that I like, they are all available legally. I like alcohol. I like nicotine. I like a cigar now and then. I like caffeine all the time. Um, I'd definitely be a, a caffeine addict if they had such a thing in the DSM. And, uh, you know, <laughs> why should I be? Why should I be able to enjoy you know my drugs anytime I want legally with no repercussions? And yet my friends who maybe like heroin or cocaine or some other opioid, methamphetamine, why should they be risking prison and all this other? crap because they want to enjoy the substances that they like. I mean, after I started working in harm reduction, going to these conferences, volunteering in needle exchange, uh, you know, the more I was involved with this, the more it was struck home with me. It is just so unfair that I can enjoy alcohol anytime I want. And these people are always at legal risk anytime they're enjoying the substance they like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just, it's just not fair. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of there is 
definitely a lot of legal, um, there's a lot of this kind of legal intersection with health and substance use that's very messy and complicated. And I can't say that I know that it's a rational legal approach. Um, so anyway, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, well, it's totally not rational. I mean, the the really bad drugs, the really dangerous drugs are alcohol and the tobacco. Not nicotine per se, but tobacco. Uh, cigarettes as a delivery system is, is an extremely dangerous delivery system. And, of course, alcohol, because it impairs reflexes so badly, it's an extremely dangerous drug. So, it, you know, our, our drug laws are based on popularity. Um, heroin wasn't popular with most people uh, running the legislature when it was, you know, they voted in the Harrison Tax Act. You know, I don't think that that tax act would have ever passed if they know, knew it was going to be a, a prohibition law. They thought it was going to be a tax law. <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously, it, it, that's what it says. It says it, it said it was a tax law. It said it was going to tax opiates. Oh, that makes sense. We tax alcohol. We can tax opiates. Yeah. And then they right. said, oh, well, now it's a prohibition law because we're going to arrest you on the tax act if you sell opiates to anyone with dependents. Yeah. Some of the crookedest things that ever happened was about that. Well, I'm getting off topic now. <laughs> we're with you, Ken. We hear you. <laughs> so, Lisa, what is the I have- state of... Uh, yes. Oh, no, I have to say I have to read up on my history. I I feel like that's some of the stuff I didn't learn in medical school. <laughs> so I'm sure I have a lot of reading to do. You need a course Yeah. Uh, anyway, go bunch, ahead. Yeah, there's a bunch of great books on the, on the history. Um, I think Drug Crazy is one of them. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of great books out there that you can read up from. Uh, Lisa, I was going to ask you about what is the state of needle exchange in Colorado? Um, uh, how many exchanges are there? What's going on? Thank you. So there's seven. Uh, we have two in Denver, two in Boulder, one in Fort Collins, one in Grand Junction, and one in Pueblo. So we're really excited. It passed the state legislature in 2010. It took 21 months to be able to begin. So uh, Denver's began in 2012. You know, Boulder, the health department actually had it for like over 20 years. Um, but they had kind of a gentleman's agreement happening in Boulder. So they finally became above ground <laughs> uh, in 2000, <laughs> probably 11 or 12, um, after it passed legislation. So we really caught the bug um, with being able to pass legislation uh, and having it really affect what we needed. We were tired of policy leaders telling us what they thought we needed to work with folks on the streets. We believe the streets should influence the policies at the Capitol. And so um, six pieces of legislation later, we are really able to, you know, make sure that not only for the other folks that do not have a syringe exchange in their part of Colorado, that we still have laws that protect them and for their health and dignity. That sounds great. Um, do you have any program where people can buy syringes from pharmacies without a prescription? Yes. However, it's up to the pharmacist's discretion, which is not always great, so you can't really even uh-huh. count on that. Uh huh. So we have um, friendly pharmacies that we kind of know about and we make sure people know about. 
those are kind of in the Denver metro area. Um, we try to be more supportive, but, you know, the, the outlying areas and the rural areas really have difficulty. And another thing that we have problems with is um, syringe disposal, proper syringe disposal. Mm-hmm. You know, the state health department tells you to put used syringes in a coffee can, wrap it in duct tape, and put it in the dumpster. Nobody feels good about Ugh. that. So it's very difficult. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. So I, uh, I, I can't even, ugh. Uh, we don't even have enough time to get into all that. However, that's a problem, and especially I've been trying to work with pharmacists too because I, w- I really need their help with HIV and Hep C prevention efforts by selling syringes, but I also need their help with like people being able to properly dispose. So there's been this really, really awesome, amazing woman that works in the uh, King Superstore in Denver. She got syringe disposals in her bathrooms at her store and then went to corporate and got them in all Colorado King Supers grocery store oh, disposals, yeah. which is huge. And then we got them in Denver Public Library. They're, of course, in the casinos and Denver International Airport, and we're working on it at the local uh, homeless shelter. Of course, we have them. And so it's people want to dispose properly, but when up until you know a minute ago people were criminalized for possessing a syringe, there's no incentive to properly dispose. So we've been um, trying to be at the forefront of that and trying to get a public syringe disposal task force out of the mayor's office so we can all talk about proper disposal issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, in uh, New York City, we actually use the the number that we collect as, uh, you know, one of the things we put on our grant applications. But we're trying to get every syringe possible, uh, you know, turned into the exchange and disposed of properly from there. So we were actually, we were actually going out from Lower East Side, uh, and we were getting lots of insulin syringes, too, because, you know, the people didn't really have a convenient way to get rid of their insulin syringes after yes. they injected the insulin we would collect them too and we would add them to our account and we would say, yeah we collect the insulin syringes from the old people too we do a service for everybody that uses any kind of needle and that's been huge for us too because we want the community you know mom was on hospice somebody's doing fertility treatments like we like it when they call and want to dispose with us because ours are incinerated just like you because we want to talk about proper syringe disposal and how we all want to dispose properly you know with folks that wouldn't normally align themselves with us so i'm totally with you because we do appreciate those opportunities where people are like yeah i didn't feel right putting it in the dumpster like i want it to be incinerated and we're like yes we totally appreciate that i want you to participate in what we're doing and so we've actually found quite a few volunteers who have come into us to this um, for one reason or another and they're like I really like what you're doing here and I want to be a part of this and then they start volunteering which has been really cool too so um, and then what I love about New York City is that you guys have those like four foot high disposals that are like mailboxes you know and you could pull them oh, yeah. out and put them in you, you know what they look I want that I have a picture on my phone and I show anybody like when I get a moment to talk about syringe disposal because I want that I want them to be in parks and high drug traffic areas around town. I want people to be able to properly dispose. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know how the Lower East Side got theirs. I know we have one standing right at our front door. Um, uh, have you asked around about how people uh, obtained those? Yes, your New York State Health Department funded them, uh. <laughs> according to our research out here. <laughs> 
So we, we, you know, don't worry. We've been kind of elbowing around to see how we can make that happen um, and who would be, you know, everybody, nobody wants to be in charge of the disposal. I don't think the problem is the four-foot-high disposal, but nobody wants to be in charge of, like, the syringes coming out of that. So um, we're all trying to come to the table to work out an agreement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Because people, pretty, you know, they uh, talk about it being an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they talk about it being an issue, but it's like we want to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we've been funded for, you know, decades, a couple decades now uh, from the New York State Department of Health and the New York City Department of Health. So, um, I mean, even though the, all the needle exchanges are independent, 501c3, not-for-profits, uh, basically they're, they function like an arm of the government because of you know, that's 90% of the funding is government contracts to do this. So it's really great in a way that, you know, the government is behind us here and, you know, funding us. And that's why we have, you know, great needle exchange programs, great needle exchange rates because Mm -hmm. they're putting in the money to pay for it. So that's Mm -hmm. the thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're getting there. Well, you know, we've been running our exchanges. Well, our exchange went legal in 1992, so we had a while. It was, you know, running underground before that in the 80s. Right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, you guys have been at the forefront. And what's been, it's really, um, you know, crazy to see a lot of the places, like, uh, are getting really conservative public health boards coming in and saying, I don't really like these syringe exchanges being there, not in New York, but around the country. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, like, we can't go backwards. We need to have more access to clean syringes and be able to properly dispose, not less, you know. So that's been pretty disheartening with our friends at the Homeless Youth Alliance who have been homeless for, what, a year and a half now Um, Mm -hmm. and in San Francisco, which is like the mothership, you know. Um, So we're just kind of sending our support to, you know, everybody we can because we need expanded access. And we don't, I mean, seven syringe exchanges in the state of Colorado is good, but not good enough. But there's a lot of communities that will never have it um, in their community. And so it's up to pharmacies to be able to, to sell where where um, the other public health folks um, are lacking. Well, we need federal funding like Australia. Australia is the model yes. of how to do it. Yeah. Mhm. Absolutely. Yeah, we need to get out of that. And it's funny too because the feds want you to keep your HIV and Hep C rates low. They just don't want to give you the funding to do so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this. I mean, Congress. It's Congress is so conservative about all this. They keep wanting. I mean, we got federal funding once, and then the Congress took it away before it was even. Yeah. Uh, you know, any of it was dispersed. We only had federal funding yeah. for what six or six or eight months or something like that, and not one dollar. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it's just been really. Um, I really feel like it's been back in the national media, obviously, because of what's going on in Indiana. Um, but I think that's mm-hmm. just a glowing representation of what we're lacking in our community, and that could happen in any community without access. Um, and so I really hope that people are learning from that and seeing how, what the devastating effects of not having access to clean syringes in your community does. Yeah. Do you want to spend a dollar on a syringe retail or it's like 10 cents wholesale, or do you want to spend a half mm-hmm. million dollars on HIV drugs? 
Not yeah. to mention the suffering involved. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So when are you going to try to get syringe exchange in, in the prisons? <laughs> are, do I we know. have any models into it. in the U.S.? Oh, I don't, not in the U.S., right, Ken? Just Iran and Australia? I think so. I don't think there's any exchange in the U.S. in prison. I, I'm pretty sure there's not, but yeah, you're right. Iran and Australia, I believe, are the two places that have implemented it. Uh, we don't have it in Rikers well, if anybody, in New York, no. If anybody could get us data, it would be Dr. Ingrid Binswinger. This might be your new passion. <laughs> as long as you're in there talking to folks about naloxone, you should be talking to them about syringe exchanges in prison. We really That's need that. Really Every prison in the world that. has drugs in there. Thank you. Nice. Nice. Very good, good idea. Here first, Maybe folks. we should start. <laughs> we'll have to start thinking about confirmation. What the barriers exactly are. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. oh. I think we could I think we could brainstorm a you little bit. Tell me what they are. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. But yeah, it is unfortunate because I uh, well, we end up testing a lot of our folks who come in and out of um prison primarily with um with saying that yeah, they injected. We had a lot of folks who were initiated in prison. Um and so they just mm-hmm, assume mm-hmm. they have hepatitis C, you know, and um, they don't. They don't even know. You know, they didn't have proper uh, water usage there, and or they went down the line, and everybody used from the same kind of makeshift syringe. I mean, we can do better. We can do better with public health, and um, that would be one way to do that. Mhm. Mhm. Well, we're about running out of time now. We've been on for almost an hour, so I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. It was great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having us, Ken. Thank you so much. Okay, everybody, come back next week, and we will have a new episode for you. So, everyone, good night.